0: This is David Weiss for the Daily Worker Placement, and you're listening to The Game Changers, Episode 13, A New Game in Town, Part 1. This episode was, in some ways, the most difficult one to write. It wasn't as hard as you think picking the game. I mean, from the moment I conceived of this series, I knew Wingspan was going to be my final game-changer. And yes, I just announced it now, instead of trying to build my usual sense of mystery and suspense. The story of Wingspan's genesis, development, and influence isn't hard to tell, either. But what makes it a game-changer... well, that's the hard part to write about. As a child... Elizabeth Hargraves played a ton of Scrabble, Rummy, Hearts, and classic kids' board games like Sorry and Candyland. She also loved logic puzzles. In college, she shared a house with 14 other people, and every night before dinner, they play Spades or Hearts while waiting for dinner to be prepared. In the summer of 1994, one of the housemates taught everyone Contract Bridge, and everyone became obsessed with it. Several years later, Hargrave arrived at a church ski weekend to find everyone sitting around the lodge playing Catan, Carcassonne, and Blockus, and that was her real introduction to modern tabletop. The game that became the lodestar to Hargrave was Tom Lehman's 2007 game Race for the Galaxy. She loved the process of building an engine out of cards with synergies that produced victory points. Another favorite was Stefan Feld's Castles of Burgundy, which we covered last episode. But Hargrave and her board game friends were outdoorsy people. As much as they liked the mechanics of many modern tabletop games, they weren't interested in the themes. Medieval economics and space exploration, it was all very samey. Why weren't there more games about stuff they were interested in? Hargrave started to think about how things in nature were like economic systems, but the resources were berries and bugs instead of wood and ore. If there were never another game whose economy was based on wood and ore, she thought to herself, I'd probably be okay with that. Hargrave decided to see if she could do something about it. She'd gone on to get her master's degree in public affairs and work as a policy analyst at the University of Chicago's Opinion Research Center, which had been founded in 1941 and was the largest independent social research organization in the United States. She did interviews, led focus groups, and then analyzed the data. And if there was one thing Hargrave knew how to do, it was work with statistics and spreadsheets all of which turned out to be a perfect skill set for the game she began working on in the mid-2010s. Crucially, she started not with the mechanics, but with the theme. As a self-confessed big nature geek and amateur bird watcher, the preferred term is birder, she decided to make birds the theme of her game. And she wanted it to be based on science, not the idealized whimsy of many animal-themed euros. She started her research with eBird, a database of North American birds, and the Ornithological Labs All About Bird site, both hosted by Cornell University. There was also the Audubon online database, the digital descendant of John James Audubon's magnum opus study of the natural world, originally published between 1827 and 1838. She collated it all into a giant 596 by almost 100 column spreadsheet using her skills, which quantified all the bird's anatomical breeding and ecological data. There followed two years worth of working with prototypes before pitching it in the summer of 2016 to publishers at Gen Con, one of North America's biggest tabletop conventions run by Wizards of the Coast, makers of Magic the Gathering, in Indianapolis, Indiana. Now, Hargrave didn't just walk into the convention blind. She researched ahead of time which publishers might be open to a game about birds, which she was well aware was quite a bit off the beaten track compared to the big four themes that dominate modern tabletop. Merchants and businessmen in various eras, but mainly medieval, Tolkien-style fantasy, Ancient Civilizations, and Science Fiction Exploration and Conquest. Only three publishers made it to her shortlist. She emailed them ahead of time, introducing herself and setting up meetings with them at the convention. The publisher who ended up showing the most interest was Stonemeyer Games, who since 2012 had established itself with games on the heavier end of the spectrum and high quality components such as Euphoria and Scythe. Hargrave noted that Stonemeyer's line also included Viticulture, a game about making wine, and Between Two Cities, a city building game. And when owner Jamie Stegmaier revealed that he'd read Bird Guides for fun as a kid, Hargrave began to feel that StoneMeyer Games could be the perfect partner for her. But even after signing up with StoneMeyer, it still took another year of development in collaboration with Stegmaier to beef up the tableau-building aspect of the game, expand the deck of bird cards to 170, and fine-tune the gameplay. Here was where Hargrave's background in social research became so valuable. Her experience leading focus groups and doing interviews meant that she was comfortable working with playtesters and debriefing them for the feedback she needed to improve the game. And her statistics background meant that she could do whatever quantitative analysis she needed using her massive spreadsheet to make sure the distribution and quantification of game elements, like habitats and nests, remained even. This was crucial, because unlike other tableau-building games like Terraforming Mars, where only certain cards stayed in play, Hargrave wanted her players to interact directly with the birds as much as possible throughout the game, which meant putting as much information on the cards as possible. What Stegmeyer brought to the collaboration was his deep knowledge of game design, as well as his very strong sense of visuals and graphic design. Stegmeier cared very much about component quality and knew that the audience for this game would not want cartoony artwork, but Audubon-like realism. He hired three talented illustrators, Natalia Rojas, Ana Maria Martinez Jaramillo, and Beth Sobel, to do the work for the cards and box art. And Hargrave made herself available to answer their questions and occasionally chimed in with her own opinions about the art. Early in the development process, playtesters warned her that her theme wasn't mainstream enough. But instead of discouraging her, it encouraged Hargrave to keep finding ways to integrate the theme more into gameplay, including, at one point, incorporating a dice tower in the form of a birdhouse. That mechanic didn't stay in the game, but they decided to keep the dice tower anyway. Near the end of 2018, Jamie Stegmeyer felt Wingspan was ready for release, and he began to work on marketing it. Stonemeyer's business model was heavily reliant on pre-orders through their own website, as well as a subscription-type service called Stonemeyer Champions, which gave purchasers $10 off per purchase for a year. Stegmaier himself was very aware of the value of buzz and word-of-mouth advertising, since Stonemeyer Games was relatively speaking a small operation he'd embraced the role of being his company's public face actively engaging with the public via social media this was a bold but risky choice it certainly helped to build customer loyalty to Stonemeyer’s brand in the marketplace but it also tied himself closely to his company's image and therefore made stonemaier's reputation dependent on Stegmeyer’s choices and actions In late November, he started talking about the game on the company's Facebook page and on the company's website. He proceeded to release daily teasers on Facebook, on BoardGameGeek, and occasionally Instagram, talking about elements of the game accompanied by photos showing off the components. But he emphasized that pre-orders were not going live until January 2nd, 2019. The response was immediate. 1,900 people joined the Wingspan Facebook group, 28,000 people checked out the game's BoardGameGeek Game Geek page, and it shot to the top of BGG's hotness chart, which measured the games that had the most buzz going on. And that was before Stonemaier had even revealed any previously arranged reviews, the release date, or even the price of the game. And the buzz kept building from there. I can attest to that personally. I was working at 401 Games, my friendly local neighborhood game store, as its board game specialist. And starting in early 2019, I began feeling almost daily questions about Wingspan. When was the game coming out? When were we expecting copies? How much was it going to be? And so on. After Hargrave was written up on the front page of the New York Times on March 11th, Below the fold, but still an unprecedentedly high-profile media mention, interest exploded. It turned out that there were plenty of people interested in a game about something other than orcs, merchants, space marines, or pharaohs. Stonemeyer couldn't keep up with the demand. After shipping out the pre-orders, there weren't nearly enough copies left to fulfill retail demand. Many people who had pre-ordered through their local stores instead of the Stonemeyer website did not end up receiving their copies until later in the fall of 2019, which many found frustrating, although in the long run it did little to dampen demand for the game. By mid-May of 2020, Stegmeyer told the Dice Tower on its daily podcast that it had sold 434,000 copies of Wingspan. That's an astonishing number. Now I'm going to take a little detour here to talk about the Wingspan distribution issue and Stonemaier's marketing in general, so bear with me, or if you want to skip it, just head over to 1505. Because part of why I chose Wingspan as the final game changer has to do with its marketing, as well as Stonemaier's and Stegmire's niche in Tabletop's ecosystem. In a long post on the Stonemeyer website the day before the initial release, Stegmeyer admitted he'd underestimated demand for the game when he ordered the initial commercial print run in August of 2018. He even revealed that he'd had a chance to print more, but decided to play it safe and stick with an initial run of 10,000, which covered the 5,000 pre-orders through Stonemeyer's own site, plus 5,000 for worldwide distribution. And although in hindsight it's easy to slam him for bad forecasting, the fact was, Stegmeier was taking a chance on a game by a first-time designer with a theme well outside traditional tabletop canon. Those of us who frequent FLGSs know all too well the sight of piles of unsold games sitting there, deeply discounted, because of over-ambitious or overconfident publishers. On the other hand, precisely the same scenario had happened with Stonemeyer's previous hit, 2016 Scythe. Lots of pre release buzz, hype and pent up demand, an underestimated first print run, apologies from Stegmeyer. Some people began to speculate that Stonemeyer was pursuing a purposeful strategy of undersupplying in order to keep the buzz going for his games. Some FLGSs accuse Stegmaier of purposefully under-fulfilling orders to stores to steal sales away from them and encourage people to order from him directly. Now, from a business standpoint, those accusations don't make much sense. Publishers want to sell as many copies as possible and as quickly as possible before demand dissipates but the situation was further complicated by the unusually ambivalent relationship Stegmaier himself had with the tabletop community at large. He had succeeded in his goal of translating his engagement with the public into a very loyal and vocal following for the Stonemeyer and his personal brand. This also led to debates similar to those around AAA video game releases, with fans rushing to Stegmeier's defense every time anyone criticized one of his games, whether the criticism was worthy or not, and neither side necessarily behaved well during those discussions. Stegmeier's active online presence also led to controversy when he made the sort of mistakes many people do in our internet age using his blog to think out loud and deal with personal issues, posting tone-deaf responses to major events such as the George Floyd BLM protests in the summer of 2020, and publicly pressuring an up-and-coming YouTube channel whose hosts happen to be people of color to post a review of an upcoming Stonemeyer release. These choices had repercussions. Elizabeth Hargrave herself, along with other prominent designers such as Eric Lang, attempted to help Stegmaier course-correct, but Stegmaier's decision to run Stonemeyer games using a 21st century model of social media engagement left him vulnerable. Some people's patience with his many mea culpa's attempts at transparency and retractions was beginning to wear thin. So to sum up, Stonemeyer Games distribution issues are emblematic of issues around hype and consumer satisfaction in today's customer driven marketplace. And Stegmeyer's online marketing strategy and the issues he got embroiled in put him right in the center of today's social zeitgeist. Some publishers and designers saw Hargrave's success as proof of what they've been saying for years that for all of tabletop's hand-wringing about growing its audience, especially to women, but also to other underrepresented communities, publishers had suffered from a lack of vision about what kind of stories tabletop games could tell, who could tell them, and how much they would sell. That self-perpetuating cycle had been reinforced, to some extent, by a small but vocal minority— of both publishers and fans, who saw themselves in a way as guardians or gatekeepers of the hobby. But now, those underrepresented groups and their allies had begun to feel emboldened and empowered enough to seriously challenge these norms and assumptions underpinning not just themes and design choices of the games, but also behavioral and structural issues in tabletop itself. And since Elizabeth Hargrave's success gave her a platform to speak up and out on these issues, she began to use it. That was part one of episode 13 of The Game Changers. I'm David Weiss for the Daily Worker Placement. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And don't flip that table.